Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the latest episode of When Sky Invented Football, the podcast that thinks it's a fanzine. I'm joined as usual by John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back? Hi John, how are you doing? Hi Adrian, I'm really good, thank you very much. Good, good. Lots to talk about today. And also Tom Walsh. Tom is a contributor to the Sunderland podcast, Wise Men Say. Tom, hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, great to hear from you. And we're going to be talking to Tom about the Netflix series about his club, Sunderland Till I Die, which is highly recommended. And two of the stars of the programme, if I can use that language, Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven, who, if the documentary is any guide anyway, are the directors who run Sunderland on a day-to-day basis. But they now seem to have lost the trust of many Mackhams and we'll be exploring why. First, though, John, I just want to reflect on an article you've written for Football 365. It follows demonstrations in London and other UK cities attended in some numbers by self-described football lads. Now, these demos were designed to protect statues of figures who they thought might be targeted by supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Why were you moved to write that article? I thought it was an extraordinary thing to follow on social media, and I was bemused in extreme by it because it was almost as though it was a dystopian satire on the modern Britain. They had all of these people chanting, there's only one Winston Churchill, while doing Nazi salutes. <laughs> they weren't all doing Nazi salutes, John. There weren't, but there were people throwing Nazi salutes, and um, it just seemed very confused, the whole thing. People were saying, what, are, what do they want? And apparently they wanted to defend statues, but when asked which statues they wanted to defend, some of them couldn't really name any statues. And uh, the lad that was uh, just uh, sent down for 14 days today, who had been caught uh, urinating next to a a commemoration, he'd had 16 pints, which is a tremendous effort. And uh, he said uh, he wanted to protect statues, but he couldn't say which ones, uh, largely probably because he'd had 16 pints. Yeah, he got jailed for 14 days, didn't he? He urinated next to a memorial to a fallen police officer. That's right, yeah. So it's clearly not about that. It's clearly um, people taking to the streets to cause trouble in a kind of general pursuit of mayhem and because they feel marginalised and disenfranchised by things like Black Lives Matter movements. And I don't think it's one of these things where you can say, you can sort of point exactly to why each individual is there. You know, there seem to be a lot of strangely influenced and poorly educated people, including one man who uh, was bellowing that Churchill had literally killed Hitler, which was news to me because I think Hitler killed Hitler. But anyway, it was all very confusing day. So I just wrote a piece about it, really, just to try and grapple with where we are with it because I think it's very odd that they use football as a banner under which to kind of unify themselves and they use football songs, um, Winston Churchill is one of our own, like he's a a local striker. And uh, I just think it's odd because this is at a time when football is incredibly inclusive and is doing more and more to help integration and equality. I mean, look at the work Marcus Rashford's doing and the letter, the open letter he published. This is is not a sport which uh, is a friendly environment for racist right-wing bigots anymore. Yeah, Marcus 
Rashford wrote a letter to the government, open letter, calling for food vouchers for poor children to be made available over the summer. In the coming days when the Premier League restarts, we're going to see Premier League footballers encouraged to take one knee in honour of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's obviously a gesture that's been adopted from the United States. Colin Kaepernick, an American football player, did that when he was expected to stand for the US national anthem. And that's now become a a symbol of acknowledgement of the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. So football at an official level and at the individual level with Marcus Rashford proving itself to be very, very progressive. And when you see these mobs, I was watching a programme the other day about Euro 96 and Gary Lineker was saying that the the build-up to that tournament was overshadowed by the fear of hooliganism. And those protesters in London in particular seemed like a throwback to the guys from Euro 96. I also attended Euro 88 in Germany. That's how old I am, watching England play. And again, you walk around the streets of Germany where people were just warm and welcoming and you get these bellowing idiots. And sadly, there are still so many of them around. I think it's um, interesting that many people, and the response I've had to that piece, many people agree they see these people like ghosts from the past. These do not look like people of the contemporary society we live in. Now, obviously, they are, but they are less and less significant and more and more marginalised, and people laugh at them. I mean, it was it, it would have been funny if it wasn't so so terrible, really. It was almost as though they were actors in a play, but playing up to stereotypes, you know, with the big England badges tattooed on their backs and, you know, fighting in the streets and snorting coke. and It's just like, really, is this what your life has come to? You know, it used to feel like that was part of football. And I thought now it doesn't feel like it's part of football. It feels like it's something which orbits football and isn't anything to do with football at all, even though some of these people obviously will go to games. But it used to feel more integral than it does now. And now it feels like a sideshow and a rather ludicrous one at that. I would I would say that that kind of feeds into the whole Brexit narrative we have in this country, the nostalgia of wanting it back in the good old days and like the younger I watched recently BBC Three's documentary called Football Fight Club which was aired about 2014-15 and that was about the new generation in quotation marks of hooligans like these young lads but all they looked at was stuff like we said in like Euro 88 Italia 90 and stuff like that and they want to try and recreate themselves so when they have an opportunity like the weekend then it's it's one of those times to like you know pretend you're a hooligan. I mean, we, you don't have you go to a normal match, you never see any trouble or anything like that. So maybe this is their way of saying, well, this is what they have to latch onto to feed that urge they have. I guess. In 2019, I made a program for Radio Five Live, and I met two of the leading voices of the DFLA, the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, and. They were insistent that they were not racist, that they were not far right. And one of the guys I spoke to had Jewish heritage and was absolutely adamant that if anybody called him racist, he'd be really offended by that. But they shared a platform with Amory Waters, 
of the For Britain group. They said they weren't part of the EDL, but at some of their marches, people chanting EDL have been clearly heard. And on their Facebook posts, there were so many Islamophobic messages at the time we were looking into it. And you just think, well, guys, you know, if you if you really aren't racist and you don't want to be seen as that, well, turning out with thousands of people who want to protect statues in protest at Black Lives Matter protests might not be the best way to do it, you know? How many like people actually say when you ask them, are you racist? How many of them actually say yes? That's that's the thing. It's like <laughs> you might you might say you know people get very offended. They say they're racist. Well, stop doing racist things. They might not think you're racist. And it's I always I do find it funny. It's like why are they always why are these groups always called like the Democratic Alliance or something? Why is it always democratic? I don't know. It's 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 just deeply deeply depressing. And I don't know. This weekend scenes just kind of reflected where where we've been in the last few years as a nation and sadly where we could be heading. I think it's odd that it's exclusively male as well. And uh, and also that there's so many of them seem very keen to get half naked straight away. There's loads of them. They've always got the top off. It's like a kind of sadomasochistic <laughs> um, homoerotic film fighting semi-nude oiled up. I mean, it's very <laughs> odd. I, really, I mean, it's, it's because it is a totally a masculine thing. It's like there's no women on these marches. Um, I don't, don't know, I'm sure there must be racist women, but apparently there are these uh, the racist men are actually also misogynists and won't let racist women onto their marches just to be even more confused about it. There will occasionally be people on these marches who are black or Asian as well. And very often they will be used by the, the demonstrators to say, look, we aren't racist. But as well as being almost, almost exclusively male, they are almost exclusively white as well. That's just the reality of it. You can't deny it. One of the slogans is um, taking Britain back. Uh, I'm not quite sure who they're taking it back from. And I'd be interested to know what who currently owns it. But that is definitely, as Tom was saying there, that is definitely an echo of the whole Brexit thing, where there's this kind of existential sense that we no longer own our own country. Though, of course, much of the infrastructure and assets of Britain has been sold to global capital. You can't get it back now. We've been sold off. Even the basic assets and infrastructure of the country has been sold to companies to sell to make money on offer for their shareholders. You know, they, they've even sold water. So, you know, if you want your country back, you've got to stop supporting right-wing free market capitalism. I somehow don't think that's on their agenda, really. I think um, having 16 pints and pissing in the streets is more uh, the kind of ambition for what they're doing. I just want to know where you got the 16 pints from, because you can't get a pint anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I'd also like to know, once you've had 16 pints, there's no way you'd remember you'd had 16 pints. <laughs> he was jailed for 14 days. It just would have been just more symmetric if he'd been jailed for 16 days. <laughs> one, <laughs> one for every pint. Yeah. But it, I, yeah. I tell you what, I think on a serious note, though, I think it is worth reflecting on the fact that I'm just going to take my football club here, West Bromwich Albion. Obviously, we had three black players who were phenomenal footballers in the late 70s, but also whose reputation now resonates down the years. Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis and Brendan Batson. 
and Albion are now acknowledged as pioneers of black football in this country. And I'm really proud of that, as many fans are, take real pride in the fact that it was awesome. I don't know, not Wolves or not Aston Villa, but obviously, ultimately, what matters is that it happened. And we have proudly displayed within the stadium an LGBTQ flag, a rainbow flag showing our inclusivity. There's also another flag, Apna Albion, which represents a Sikh supporters group. So just amplifying that point that you made, John, about how football really does strive at an official level to be really inclusive now. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. Many, many more women and girls attend football that did when I first started going to football as well. Brilliant. Bring that on. But there is always a grumble of discontent from social media. And when the LGBTQ flag started going up at the Hawthorns, there were people complaining about that. When West Brom put out a, a black sign on the day when there was a kind of social media blackout by many companies to express solidarity with Black Lives Matter, one fan saying, well, that's it, you've lost me as a fan. In credit to the club, they said, yeah, you won't be missed, which I thought was fantastic. But, you know, we can't pretend that everyone shares the same progressive liberal values that I hope we do, and that at the top level anyway, that, that football clubs do. Yeah, I think it's often the case that these so-called football lads and all of the varying movements that orbit around and intermingle with them we only really see them in when England are playing away in a relatively near European town now. It seems to be almost like a, a kind of retro activity. As Tom says, you don't see it football games really very often. I certainly haven't. But come if England are playing in France or Holland or Portugal, somewhere you can get to quickly on a flight, that's when we see them again. And... I suppose it's a sign that they are being marginalised, that they only they get pulled together by the England banner. I wonder how long it will take before they see the England side are essentially, and the players are publicly and persistently decrying their outlook on life, which may be overrating it really in that sense. But you know what I mean. You've got people who are speaking out against it and saying, you know, and these are these are the boys in our national shirts. You know, these are playing for England, and they're saying we don't like you, and we think you're wrong, and think you're a bad person for being like this. I wonder if that will chip away at it really over time. I certainly hope so. Mm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think going back to the '80s, I think that you know the England setup, England managers, England players always spoke out against hooliganism always spoke out against violence and yet there are people who seem to think that having the flag of St George in in your hand or having the Union Jack in your hand increasingly the flag of St George I think that's changed over the years as well is a justification for for committing acts of violence but there is a political overlap as well because we've heard a lot of talk following the Brexit referendum and following the last general election about the the left-behind towns. Very often, the flags that you see displayed away at England games are from those left-behind towns, people who who feel shafted by the system and who, for whatever reason, want to work off their energy and aggression by giving Johnny Foreigner a bit of a drubbing. That's a great point, actually. You're absolutely right about that. 
the England travelling support does often be noticeably drawn from smaller towns and out of the way places. You'll always see Rochdale flags and things like that, won't you? Uh, I mean, this this is the interesting thing, is that how the cross-fertilisation of politics and societal developments and economics all feeds into these things. And I think we always want to have one big lever to pull in order to make it better. But in fact, it's multi-hued, this. It's a, it's a, it's a multi-layered thing. And lots of different issues all need tackling. Uh, and we can't go around excusing people for being beastly to other people on the basis that their skin and the economic systems worked against them. But equally, we have to understand how that does fuel discontent and nameless rage. So, you know, it's, it's important to look at this in the round, I think. Yeah, and I just think it's important to acknowledge, as I think you did in your article, John, that although those groups are no longer representative, if they ever were, I'm not sure they ever were, but there were, there were certainly more of those kind of groups of bellicose males at football. They were a, a dominant group, if you like, in the 80s and 90s, and they're not anymore, but they are still there at football grounds. I suppose that's what I'm saying. You know, we can't close our eyes to them. They are still there. Maybe we can look to Scotland for an example, because there was a time Scotland's travelling fans, the Tartan Army, were quite well known for uh, tearing places apart and eating trains. Now they're not. Now they're welcomed. And they, the culture changed. The Tartan Army culture changed. And it became more knowing and self-aware. You do have some issues occasionally, but really, it, it's by and large, it's just nothing like the England situation. Same goes for Ireland as well. I would I would say on that it's I think in Scotland it's different because they they're not rabidly obsessed with World War Two and winning World War Two, whereas yeah. in this country, I, I mean, I'm I'm only in my thirties, but I like and I have no experience of conflict or anything like that. But if you did fight in World War Two, you'd be in your mid nineties now, <laughs> and I, I just wish as a nation we would just get over the fact that we we won that war and all the horrible things that came with that. And it was it's nothing, I don't think it's particularly anything to celebrate. And like you said, but people now we think we're honouring our war dead by going, marching on Westminster, doing our Zig Heils. So I, I don't know. And that, that kind of mentality, the kind of, when we go to, when England go to uh, away games, it's not like a congregation. It's like more like an occupation of these foreign cities and just just giving giving a bad reputation even just to normal people like ourselves just going on holiday to places you feel you have to apologize especially if you're a football supporter having to (laughs) meekly explain to a german that i'm not here to throw your garden furniture around i'm just here for a beer yeah and you know the germans are a good example they had uh, of how to get over your past one of my sort of side hobbies is the history of um east german football and uh, how um, so many clubs have come and gone, and sporting clubs have risen and fallen, and because of the the falling of the wall, and how many things changed and everything. And you, can you imagine the history they have to deal with and to rationalise out and even apologise for? It feels like they're more civilised than we are, you know, because of that almost, you know. Anyway, big stuff for a football podcast to be talking. Now, Tom, let's <laughs> Tom, let's talk about Sunderland because the decision to end the regular League One season has left the Black Cats finishing in the lowest position in their history, eighth in the third division. There will still be 
League One playoffs, but unless you're in those playoff positions, that's it for you. And uh, I'm just interested to have a chat with you because, A, I loved the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, two different series on Netflix. You've not seen it, have you, John? No, I haven't seen it yet. I don't have Netflix and I don't have time to watch anything. But, yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in it. Ah, but you don't have time not to watch programmes like this. I mean, the first series was brilliant. Sunderland aiming to go straight back up after relegation from the Premier League, instead dropping down. And I love using the analogy at the best of times that, that football is a soap opera, but this was the ultimate. It was the chief executive, Tom. What was the in the first series? It was a very dishy Martin Bain. Martin Bain, who really fancied himself. and <laughs> Yes, could, he did. <laughs> he really, really fancied himself. And there was all this talk about the, you know, the business plan. And he was having to liaise with the absentee owner, Ellie Short, who was trying to sell the club. They're aiming to get back into the Premier League and they're running really at a Premier League budget, end up slipping through down into League One. Then Series Two, very different kind of feel to that series. But you got these two guys... Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven, who appears to be running the club, and they've got all their management mantras sorted out, but still incapable of turning Sunderland into a decent League One club even, never mind a Premier League club. And I was saying, Tom, before we started recording, that obviously they weren't particularly successful, but they seemed like good football people. They seemed passionate. They seemed interested. Now we discovered that the company, the vehicle, they used to buy the club, this company called Madrox, it used the parachute payments that you get from the Premier League to buy the club. And the, the deal was that that would then be repaid back to the club because it's the club's parachute payments. But apparently that's now been written off. What's gone on? Make sense of it for me, please. Uh, well, first of all, when you're saying about how they come across as uh, passionate football people, that's what we all thought when they originally arrived at Sunderland. They, they came, obviously, you see at the end of Sunderland Till I Die season one, that the club's going to be sold and it, it's it's looked to this big positive thing. And we were all, despite being going to lead, uh, like third division for like the second time in our entire history, even though that's that should be the nadir of um, of a club like ours, it, we went down with a bit of like a hope, and it was like, oh well, there, there might be a positive side to this. So like, we'll see some new grounds. We'll hopefully we'll probably win a few more games. We've got these young players coming through, and it all, and we've got these new owners who uh, they're talking how they want to kind of get the fans back more involved because we like Sunderland supporters. We were. Loads of people were so disillusioned by the two calamitous seasons in the Premier League and in the Championship. Attendances were so, so down. And, and then just people just felt so disconnected from the football club. And yet these uh, Donald and Methvin come in, say all the right things. How, well, Charlie Methvin's famous line is like the piss-taking party's over and how like people... People quite uh, prophetic, in especially coming from him in the, the months <laughs> to come. But he was saying all the right things, and he s- said how we can't, we've got to realign expectations. We can't have people, players coming here thinking it's just a big paycheck and whatnot. And so, yeah, it all seemed great. But then you fast forward to today, eighth in League One. I mean, obviously, there's a bit of an asterisk with this this season of what's happened. But like we're in an enormous hole. What they essentially did, they paid 
an initial deposit of £5 million to Ellis Short and then use the future parachute payments to pay the rest. And when parachute payments were originally conceived, I don't think the idea was so owners could buy clubs through future earnings. Those parachute payments should have been our kind of a leg up against the rest of the division. Yes, we're in League One, and yes, we're at our lowest ebb, but we should have more money than all of these teams combined that should give us a sporting, well, like a sporting advantage, maybe an unfair advantage for being, for being rubbish, but, you know. Um, and it's just every, every month comes a new, like, calamity. It's, I mean, I've got pages and pages of notes here. Just in the past week, they're having to backtrack on, the, on a season card, on next season season card. Say, so say, for instance, you're in your support and you wanted to renew for next season. You can do, but obviously we don't know if there's going to be fans in the ground. So would you receive a refund for that? No, you just get a streaming pass instead. And but so you had, say you have a family in a house and everyone's got a season ticket. You only get one streaming pass. So who in the right mind is going to do that? And it's just, it's just stuff like this. And then the <laughs> the stuff last month and say the loan that they took out of the club that they now took away a legal obligation to pay it back. It's just absolutely ludicrous. So now the touting around this, touting around uh, Sunderland, and the asking price for a League One club is forty million pounds. No League One club goes for that. Wigan, who I mean, admittedly they're a much smaller club than us, they went for about nine million pounds, and they're in the Championship. When we were sold in two thousand seven to the Drummerville Consortium, we went for ten million pounds, and. It's, I just, it's it's very very worrying because I, I I've got like this kind of vision that we're heading down the same path as Bolton, Bolton especially, Charlton, so many other teams, and I could like we've we've had the canary in the coal mine which was buried and no one seemed to care, so I, it wouldn't be on the realms of possibility that this this is left to go unchecked for so long that we could be the next oh why didn't some somebody do something about Sunderland, so. Yeah, but apart from that, we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm quoting. I'm quoting from the Sunderland Echo and Madrox, which is the holding company of which Methven and Donald Depart say that they have put eleven and a half million pounds into the club since year end. So it wouldn't be fair to say that they haven't put anything into the club. But it is odd that this twenty million pound commitment that they made to repay the parachute payments has now been taken off their list of commitments to the club. Whether that will make the club easier to sell, I I don't know in the long run. But I mean, John, this all speaks, doesn't it, to this big question of football ownership and running clubs at unsustainable levels, which we yak on about every week. But the the idea that a, a great club like Sunderland, who are truly one of the great names in English football, and who I think it's really important to know, represent a community, a, a city that otherwise isn't represented anywhere on the national stage, that, that this might be a threat to them. It doesn't help. I was just thinking, how long is it, Tom, since Sunderland got um, relegated from the Premier League? Is it three years now? Yeah, 2017, yeah, under David Moyes. So this year, they should be getting the third parachute payment 
from the Premier League. So they're still effectively living off the money from the Premier League uh, situation. And I think if you were looking, um, and this is what happened with the Bolton situation as well, I think you're you're right to, to draw that comparison. It just seems it pulls very odd people into its orbit football at this level, doesn't it? This isn't how you run a proper business, is it? I would say, John, I, th- I think it attracts people who are, in the case of Stuart Donald and Charlie Method, you know, who are successful in other areas of life, who look at football from the outside and they think, how hard can it be? It shouldn't be hard, you know. It's just, yeah, running a football club should be a simple business compared to many businesses. There's not much to take care of, is there, really? You've got to pay the players, keep the ground in good condition, and that's pretty much all you've got to do. You don't have a lot of other things. You know, it's not it's not a complex business. I don't know why it's so hard. <laughs> well, it's a complex business, John, because because the wages are so high. And, and if you drop 5,000 people from your attendance or 10,000 people, then paying those wages becomes a very difficult matter. And week after week, if you're not meeting those wage bills, then it, it does rapidly become a serious financial situation. I should just say, by the way, Madrox have said that in addition to the £5 million deposit, which they paid when they bought the club, they injected more than £9 million in in the 2018-19 season and over £11 million in 1920. So that's £25 million in total. I, I just got the sense, and I, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, Tom, watching the the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, that they were people who, perhaps like Ellie Short, your previous owner, had the best of intentions, but the particular world of football it is not... You just can't mould it in the way that you can if you're making widgets. I, I would take uh, an issue with that. I would wonder who they were looking out for. I think they had the best intentions of themselves. It's like, if you watch that documentary, this is what I didn't like. I really didn't enjoy the second series because that season was all about, meant to be about the rebirth of the club, whereas essentially it was just some... I felt it was like a vanity project for for Donald and um, Mesfin. And what what is evidently clear through this entire documentary is it, it's promotional bust. As I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording, um, during the during the footage, it shows um, Stuart, Stuart Donald showing around some investors around the Academy of Light. The only time he's actually seen at the Academy of Light during the entire series. And the person who he's actually with is, um, is a person called Mark Campbell, who was looking to buy the club. So even even in the the few months they've been there, they're already showing around new buyers. So in my in my head, I would think what they're looking to do here is okay, reduce a lot of costs, strip away a lot of the lot of staff, a lot of things that were co- expenditure like cryo chambers and whatnot, get promoted, flip it, and then sail off into the sunset, having only paid originally five million quid. Mm. By the way, the cryo chamber, John, you'll be interested to know. They had one of these great cryo chambers that are helpful, supposedly, in in players' recovery from injury. Uh, Apparently, the only person who used it was the highly self-regarding chief executive, Martin Bain, who had a bit of an iffy back. (laughs) I thought when you said you had a cryo chamber, it meant you'd... um... 
you'd kept kind of the, the body of Bobby Kerr or, or some sort of player from the 50s in there and they'd just keep thawing him out. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got Jim Montgomery in storage, lads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That looks like Ian Porterfield taking the pitch. Yeah. We've got Nana Quinn in there. Yeah, we froze him. Yeah, we froze him. <laughs> no, it's a sad situation, really, because I used to go to Roker Park when I was at college, because I went to college in Newcastle. And so when Newcastle weren't playing, we would go through to Sunderland. And um, it was the, the coldest ground I've ever been to. Colder even than, than Oldham's ground, Boundary Park. And, in fact, than the Hawthorns. And I feel sad that it's been dra- dragged down to this level, really, you know. And uh, it must make the the Bob Murray years seem um, rather glamorous and affectionate now. Yeah, I mean, that's what you... That's what's going to be our obituary, really, what you've said there, John. I feel really, you know, oh, I feel really sorry for them. They don't deserve this. I've I've heard that. I've heard that for years. But it's like the same, it's the same churn. And we're just, as as uh, Adrian, you were saying before, it's like Sunderland's not a, really a place that gets highlighted much. The only thing people know Sunderland for is Brexit. That's all the, anyone ever talks about Sunderland. And they have a football team there. That's and it's like the first series of the of Sunderland Till I Die was so was so well done. Showed the people, showed the city in such a a beautiful light because it's a it's a it's a maligned part of the world, but it's such a beautiful part of the world, and it, and it met it showed the human element to it. And the second one, it's just about these two. Well, I don't like Sunderland being. Compared, like viewed through the lens of these two owners, who they'll be gone, hopefully very soon, but they'll just be a footnote, and we'll have to, as supporters, we'll have to pick up the pieces once again, and we'll still have to take the the flack and the kind of ribbons for this. And I'm really worried. Am I going actually going to go back to a football club when this all ends? Because there's a lot to say I might not do. Really interesting. Tom, well, listen, we really do wish you all the best. I've got a lot of time for Sunderland, the football club and the people of Sunderland as well. I hope we speak again soon on a brighter note and people can hear you as well on the Wise Men Say podcast. They can see John Nicholson in Football 365 and do buy his brilliant book, Can We Have Our Football Back? I'm Adrian Goldberg. If you do want to drop me an email, it's goldbergradio at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at goldbergradio. John is on Twitter at Johnny the Nick. We'll see you all again next time. Thanks for listening. Cheers, John. Cheers, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Adrian. Cheers, man.